You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 93 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauka, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash library pros. Consider leaving a review or telling someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. And today joining us is James English, Director of Business Development for the Palace Project and Lyricist, Micah May, Director of Ebook Services, Digital Public Library of America, Michelle Kimpton, Senior Global Director, Palace Project Division Lyricist, and Heather Tesco, Implementation and Community Strategist for the Palace Project. They are all involved with the Palace Project, an innovative way to deliver ebook technology to libraries. We are going to talk to the group about the Palace Project, and let's learn about our group first. So thanks so much for agreeing to come on to the podcast and, and talk to us about this important project. Why don't you all tell us how you've been involved in Library Land? My start in Library Land, other than being a patron and reading books in the children's library with my parents, was working at the Internet Archive as the director of web archiving. Working with Brewster Kale, we saw the need to really make sure we archive the web for future generations because web pages have, on average, a 90-day life cycle. And that exposed me to national librarians all over the world. And we began to work together to archive the web. And from there, we digitized books and curated material for digital access. And there went my, my relationship with libraries. I'm James. My first experience with libraries is probably just riding my bike to a local town library in Texas. But professionally, it was when I came to work uh, with Mike at the New York Public Library on this project. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so I started in library land in 2009. I had been at a big consulting firm called McKinsey and Company and got a job as director of strategy for New York Public Library, which was a great place to start my library career. Really broad and interesting. Yeah, that's one heck of a place to start your career. That's not too bad. And Heather. And Heather. Hi. So I started in Libraryland back around 2001 when I was working for an online music company that was an online music database that uh, was called classical.com, which was like before Spotify, before all of that, it allowed patrons to create playlists and access music at the library. And I had a couple of vendor positions and then I became part of the team at Khalifa, which is the largest library consortium in California made up of 220 libraries. And I was there for 10 years doing all kinds of cool projects, including building ebook platforms, negotiating with ebooks. I have a long history with ebooks and libraries. You guys really have done it. You're in, you, you came from library land. That's for sure. Sounds like a great team. Yeah. So Micah and James, uh, technology minded library professionals are more prevalent uh, than they have been in the past. And with some of you coming from the New York public library, arguably as Chris and I agree, the biggest influential library in the world, Uh, I would assume NYPL fostered your curiosity to learn and develop your skills. So tell us a little bit about your experience at the New York Public Library. Yeah, it was a great place to get started in library land, that's for sure. So when I started there in 2009, uh, the president, who's still the president, Tony Marks, Anthony Marks, had three big strategic priorities. And one of them was to really improve how libraries were able to serve ebooks. And so as we started digging into that, 
you know, there were a lot of different ways that could work. I think, you know, one of the goals was to try to get a hold of more of the titles in ebook form. At that time, there were a lot of challenges for libraries serving ebooks. So folks that have been in library land for a while might remember, you know, 2010, 2011, uh, many of the big five publishers, including Penguin and Simon and Schuster, had pulled out of libraries completely and weren't making their titles available. So we started to engage with those publishers and push them to try to make their books available. Uh, but the other thing that we recognized is that the ways that libraries were serving ebooks were not really very satisfying. You know, the only platform available was the Overdrive platform, and we really just felt that it disintermediated the relationship between the patron and the library, uh, and that the library lost a lot of control. We also recognized that if we wanted to source library ebooks from more than one place, then that patron experience became totally fragmented. You know, we had to send patrons to different places to get eBooks if we sourced them in different places, which made no sense. So in, um, you know, 2012, uh, I actually remember pitching to Tony Marks that, look, if there's one thing we're going to do in this space, we need to build our own app to serve eBooks in a way we can control. And so we wrote the Library Simplified grant to the IMLS um, and that got this project started. So, you know, that was one of a number of really exciting things we did on a technology front at NYPL. Uh, also helped start the New York Public Library, uh, the NYPL Labs, which was an experimental group that did some of the first library crowdsourcing projects. Uh, but the Library Simplified project really grew to have an influence, I think, across the whole community. Um, and that was largely because of James. James was the first hire on the project. He was the project manager um, and hired all of our first developers and really set us on a great track in terms of the technology. So let me pass it to James to have him tell you a little bit about his experience there. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, Micah. Yeah, it was really exciting to work at NYPL. I was coming from the private equity sec uh, sector. I was running a small software company there, basically, as I describe it, making another buck for a billionaire. And really looked when I saw this opportunity to move to New York City and, and work with an institution like New York Public Library, just had to jump at it. I got to go up and meet Mike and uh, the team he had put together there, which was really unique in library land as a strategy organization. So the opportunity to work on this project was really exciting because he was going to give us the opportunity to really approach it like a startup and use the, you know, the, uh, this grant and this project as kind of an incubator strategy to develop a solution uh, to improve eBooks, uh, just as he and Tony Marks had uh, uh, decided that the library was going to try to solve. So uh, I learned a lot about libraries, uh, learned every day while I was there at the, on the job. It was exciting work. Uh, There's an exciting team I could put together with the, uh, the NYPL labs for the crowdsourcing. So we drew a lot of our inspiration uh, from that group of designers and engineers, but then really try to take kind of a commercial approach to the development of the software uh, to really tackle kind of at a strategic level, some of the things that were blocking uh, library access, that these concepts of vendor lock-in, capturing eyeballs commercially, uh, being able to mine data. Those are some of the core things we wanted to tackle, but not threaten a business model uh, so that they would let, let us work with them. It was interesting when we came and looked at eBooks, the way we started was we just went into their own support tickets and found what were the three top tickets that they had in their support group. And it was finding a book, downloading a book and opening a book and reading a book. That'd be like having an email app that, you know, you couldn't find your email, write an email or send an email. 
And so it was really a, a, a pretty big problem that we saw. And, uh, you know, I was just grateful that we, you know, Mike gave us the, the resources and the, the team to, to go after it. And I think we've, we've built something pretty good here. Uh, and I think it's going to go to the next level under Michelle's leadership as the Palace Project. And it really does seem like a great project. So we're going to talk about this amazing project in our next segment, but can you give us a little bit of background about Lyricis? Sure, I'll start. So Lyricis has been around um, for quite a while. They're one of the largest national library uh, organizations, consortia, and they work with public libraries, academic libraries, archives, museums, actually all over the globe. They're under the leadership of Robert Miller. He took the CEO position, I think it was about five or six years ago. And at that time, he really changed the mission and the impact of Lyricist, really moving it from an organization that, you know, we say is kind of more transactional, working with libraries to more innovative and started to develop technology hosting services, technology products and platforms so that libraries could really focus on delivering content, serving their patrons, and less on worrying about running the, the technology. James, you want to add to that? Yeah, Lyricist is one of those organizations that's really kind of changed from your traditional concept of a consortium, and we, we really call it as a legacy business. It is really a, a nationwide, well, global nonprofit, uh, really focused on providing technology services to libraries. And with a particular commitment to open source technologies, open source communities, and bringing librarianship into those communities. Sounds like it's an amazing organization. It is more than a consortium. So we'll take a short break. And when we return, we're going to chat with our group about Digital Public Library of America, the Powers Project, and how content gets to libraries. So we'll be back in just a moment. So we're back with James English, Micah May, Michelle Kimpton, and Heather Tesco. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about the Digital Public Library of America and also the Powers Project. Where did the idea begin? Thank you. Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, the Digital Public Library of America has been around for about a decade. Uh, it was really formed by a group of library leaders who came together at the Berkman Center at Harvard and recognized that libraries were going to need some help in order to make the transition to a digital world and to have the impact that they've had over the last few centuries. So uh, Digital Public Library of America, or DPLA's mission, is really to maximize access for Americans. And the first project that DPLA took on was building DP.LA, which is an aggregation of what we call cultural heritage materials. So that's you know openly licensed materials from libraries, but also museums, historic societies, all kinds of institutions around the country. Uh, and it has about 45 million of those items. So not only do we bring them together in a single search, we also help uh, the owning institutions get them into Google, do search engine optimization, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of the first DPLA project. But from the beginning, there was also a desire to help libraries serve more contemporary popular materials like eBooks. Um, and so in sort of, Late 2016, 2017, uh, we had just completed the library e-content access project 
which was another big IMLS grant to the New York Public Library to um, invest in the Library Simplified platform, but also to explore what it could look like to create a library-owned marketplace for eBooks. So, you know, the vision for Library Simplified was that libraries could really own the platform uh, from back end to front end, all the way from sourcing the books to serving it to the library patron. And the first grant, Library Simplified, which was awarded in 2013, kind of paid to build the Simply E app, uh, the open source app, and this piece of middleware, which is what allows the library to merge content from lots of different sources. So the last missing component was a marketplace where libraries could buy the books from a library-owned sort of nonprofit provider. So at NYPL in 2015, 2016, we did a big RFP. We had 17 partners. We looked at building that. Um, and then ultimately, you know, New York Public just decided that was a step too far in terms of building that business within the New York Public Library. So they didn't take that on. Um, and in 2017, DPLA decided that they would take it on. So with support from the Sloan Foundation, we launched the DPLA Exchange, um, which has now become the Palace Marketplace. And it's the only nonprofit a library-driven distributor of eBooks in America. And so that was grown at DPLA. You know, we started the project in 2017. It went live at the end of that year, uh, you know, and we kind of piloted it through 2018 until present. And then earlier this year, DPLA and Lyricist together received a major grant from the Knight Foundation to kind of take the project to the next level of scale nationally. Uh, and that's when the decision was made to spin it off and sort of rebrand it and clean up the branding and create the Palace Project, which Michelle Kimpton now leads. So I'll let her talk more about how that uh, has evolved. Yeah, so I also, prior to Lyricist, was at DPLA and... Mike and I were working together on building out the marketplace that he just talked about. And I was also working closely with NYPL to really advance project that they were working on, which was Library Simplified. And from that period, which was kind of the four years that Mike had talked about, there was incredible interest and I would say pent up demand from libraries to really lean into having a library-owned, library-driven platform for distribution of digital content to patrons and where libraries were able to make choice and were able to be front and center in that experience with patrons in the delivery of those of those digital uh, ebooks and audiobooks. So we applied for a major grant from Knight, building on the work that we had done, and they were really interested in this work. And this was right before the pandemic hit. And we did receive this very large grant investment from Knight, which really allowed us to begin scaling. And it was well-timed with what was going on in the pandemic because libraries had shut their doors and there was a 20% surge basically across the board and increased increased ebook and audiobook lending and libraries really began to realize wow you know the choices i have in terms of how to interact with my patrons and how to get these ebooks to my patrons in the most successful way so that they have broad diverse access to ebooks and i can help guide that experience they realized the limitations you know when everything that they were doing was in the digital space so that has really 
been a centerpiece for us in terms of promoting the Palace Project and getting our libraries lined up for the adoption of the Palace Project because they really want to play a role with patrons in the digital space. And this platform and the marketplace really allows them to, to take that control. Talk about timing, right? Timing is everything. And, and oh timing that's, that was terrible for everybody else actually worked a little bit to your advantage. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that it really put libraries are, I'm sure you know, you're both in libraries are super busy. They're trying, you know, to manage a physical space, physical books, and then now this digital space. So it really put a hundred percent of the focus for some period of time on digital. And they realized, wow, you know, my digital patrons aren't actually the same as my physical patrons. And there's so much room for expansion in the digital space. The digital is really serving just a small market, a small segment of all the patrons and residents in their area. And, you know, what we want to do is really broaden that digital experience for everybody. So everybody has access to eBooks and audiobooks. There's over a thousand libraries today that don't have eBooks in their offering. And can you imagine what did, what did those patrons do during the pandemic? And you talk about keeping and retaining patrons, you know, a big part of it was the digital footprint that libraries have. And having a product like this and having a service like this really does help with that digital footprint to not only retain patrons, maybe even attract new patrons who you may not have had before, who may, like you say, never come into the building, but because they can do it right on their phone, they can do it right on their tablet, they can access it when they're at college or when they're away on vacation. And it, it really does make a difference. And talk again, timing is everything. It was probably very advantageous for you guys. Exactly. Like if you look at when patrons go to the library, there's a big gap between, you know, when you're like 15 years old and when you're 50 years old. And that's a whole segment of the population that is, you know, becoming purely digital. And don't you want to engage with those patrons and not only for ebooks and audiobooks, but that could be a runway for further engagement on the digital spectrum. Wow, what a great opportunity to fill a void that was left by libraries not be able, being able to be a place. You know, there was so much there's so much work being done within the ten years before with the pandemic about libraries being a place and it was all about the four walls and the physical um, and so much attention to that. What a great job you folks did by by filling that that void that was left. Um, especially during the pandemic. This is uh, really impressive. And Chris, I guess you might agree that this does a lot to keep the patrons where a lot of libraries lose them. You know, right after they, they break out into adulthood and then they go on and live their life, we don't really see them again sometimes until they have kids of their own. They bring them back. So this is a great way to, to hold on to that patron base by offering, you know, uh, services like this. Yeah, it's another tool that it retains those 20-somethings. That's right. So, James, tell us a little bit more about the uh, the tech infrastructure for an endeavor like this must be, you know, insanely complex, uh, not just in an app or software, but also in formatting the materials. So did you start from the ground up with the coding? Uh, we, we did. We uh, when we looked at the problem, we we kind of stepped back and looked at how uh, the technology that the uh, libraries were using, what was it built on? And so what we found was that the industry was kind of built along this legacy infrastructure um, around Adobe for both rendering and uh, encrypting the content. So we wanted to look at areas like that. We also wanted to look at some of the, the design patterns that uh, they were using in the mobile apps. And so we felt that, you know, to, to do this, we really needed to 
put libraries, uh, give them a seat at the table in the technology industry. And that doesn't mean we're working directly with Google or Apple. It's really working with those behind the scenes industry groups, such as the Redium Foundation or the W3C that were really uh, paving the way. Coming from the software industry, you know, that's how we operated. There is, you know, you, you see this incredible technology being built by the, the big guys, but it's really small guys building it. Uh, like Keyhole Technologies is where Google Maps came from. No one knows it, uh, but that's where it was born. And those are acquired because R&D at a big company can be funded, but it can't necessarily be operated. So we, we really wanted to take an approach like that in this uh, kind of incubator setup that Mike had uh, let us operate in. So we, we joined a group called the Redium Foundation. Uh, we then went and looked at the open source community for some ringers of technology. So we were able to hire Leonard Richardson, who is uh, both uh, a brilliant software developer, but also a, a writer. So very uh, uh, knowledgeable, both in the context of the application at hand, as well as the code that we would be using. We wanted to do cloud-based technologies for the back end, So everything that we built was going to run uh, in those type of technologies and built upon those technologies, open source, running in uh, cloud infrastructure like uh, Amazon Web Services. On the front end, you know, we had to we had to be native. Uh, over fifty percent of the internet traffic is on a mobile device. Of that traffic, ninety over ninety percent is through a, a native app, not a, a web browser on a mobile device. And so we needed to be where the patrons were because libraries weren't. And so we wanted to give libraries a again a place at, uh, up front where the patrons were. So we uh, got some ringers there. We got a, a Winnie Quinn who wrote one of the. Uh, first ebook apps uh, that was on iOS before iOS had iBooks. Um, she also wrote uh, one of the, the first uh, digital magazine apps uh, at, when she was working at Scroll Motion. And her colleague, Mark Ransford, who's over in England, uh, was her colleague there, and we uh, brought him on to do the Android side of the development. And so we, we, that was our team. It was a small little startup team, uh, two uh, front-end developers, and uh, under... Uh, Micah's leadership, we were able to grow, uh, grow that team uh, later on and start to expand the platform. Uh, the real complexity is in the back end, that piece of middleware that uh, ties all the different content uh, sources together. But it tries to make that simple for the front ends by uh, providing kind of a standard way of talking to the mobile, uh, to the client applications. And again, we, we turned uh, again to the open community uh, and, and followed on some uh, open standards. Some of the things that we uh, did that is, uh, I think I'm very proud of in it is that we actually took library principles and applied them to the building of the technology. So things like uh, anonymity of readers, we weren't doing commercial practices of scraping as much data as we can about people, capturing unneeded data, uh, we actually went to great lengths to uh, anonymize uh, people's uh, uh, identity from even the vendor apps that we would be borrowing content from. We did additional steps to secure the transactions as well as the, any of the information as it was stored on the app. So that was a, another area that you know was in keeping with library principle. And lastly, accessibility. Uh, we did choose to kind of break apart the technology that we licensed around DRM to break apart uh, what it was using for rendering uh, content and used uh, uh, some open, an op a new open uh, source uh, communities uh, development uh, from the Redium Foundation, uh, which is a global uh, uh, community of 
application developers uh, for digital content. And one of their key principles uh, was around accessibility. So that's one of the unique things that we were able to do before any of the ebook apps at that time were able to do. And that was actually let the assistive technologies on the devices read the book back to you. You know, and, and, and what that meant is that, you know, those uh, instead of sending patrons who may have a family member who has a visual impairment off to the NLS to try to get content, uh, they could actually use the core ebook services of every patron on the same uh, device that other people were using at home to read books and have them read back to them. So that was one of those things where we really tried to take the library principles to guide us in the technology, but take some of these more uh, commercial practices of getting behind the technologies, getting to the foundations, to those smaller communities that actually kind of lead the way uh, to kind of leapfrog the technology we were applying at the time. You know, the first thing that jumps out at me is, first of all, oh my goodness, what a Herculean task starting from the ground up. And then what the application of library principles to everything you do, just, it, it's amazing because in the early days of eBooks, I'm talking about the real early days of eBooks. You had to have Adobe Digital Editions, and you had to do this, and you had to do that, and you had to add this, and then do that, and then rub your head and pat your tummy, and and stand on one leg and chew gum, and there were all these different things, and it was such an impediment to libraries being able to deliver that content to the patrons that it was so frustrating. It turned a lot of people off in the beginning, but it sounds like you've pretty much thought of, or, or maybe you've learned from the mistakes of the past. And said, let's not do that. Let's not be reliant on Adobe Digital Editions. I'm sorry, Adobe. Uh, let's not rely on one particular um, piece of software. Let's, and let's go where the patrons are. Because, yes, patrons were using Kindles back in the day. Uh, and it was extremely hard. And you had to download the Kindle version. You had to download you know, the EPUB version, all these other different things. Where it sounds like most people, as we know from the, the statistics from our podcast, are listening on a mobile device. They're not, watch, they're not listening to us on a PC. They're not listening to us on a laptop. They are, but you know those numbers are low. Sorry for those people listening on a laptop or a PC right now, uh, but you're not in the majority. But you really, for me, you're striking a chord because you're not just building it and then saying, well, those, they'll just have to deal with the way this is. You, you were thoughtful. You kept library principles in mind. And you really were designing it with the patron in mind, which not every software developer does when they're developing something um, for an end user. So that really is great. And, and Bob, you know, you have some experience with this too, so you you understand this. Yeah, I mean, it's important to do exactly what you guys did. You know, think of the patron first. So patron first model is exactly what's successful in trying to commercialize or build more commercially library type products. Um, and you guys did it all right. I mean, I'm sure there were bumps in the road uh, that we can talk about, but um, it sounds like you from the from day one you stepped back and actually you know noticed who you were building it for, uh, you know, and had a, and had a um, the correct process in place to do it. So well, we were reminded every day by the librarians. I'm sure. We were, yeah, you were, yeah. <laughs> Listen we were to building the it for they'll so. tell you. Yeah, they'll tell yeah, you. They kept, they kept us straight. Yep, they do. They tend to do that. What are you guys doing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Why would you do it this way? Yeah, yeah that's yep. it, that. It, kudos to you guys because it sounds like it was well thought out, and you really tried to think of everything. So 
that really is great. And you know what you did? And for any, uh, not, we may have some companies listening, but for, for companies that are trying to do this kind of stuff, like these folks did exactly what you need to do. Like to, to James's point, you need to talk to the front end librarians, the people at the service desk that are hearing the patrons and listening to the patrons. I mean, they are a fan. That's one thing I'll give uh, public service librarians is they listen to the patrons and uh, a lot of developers or developer class folks and, and even engineers and even some of the, some of the front end, you know, uh, administrative work that's, that's behind the scenes. They don't pay enough attention to that. That could make your product or break your product. You know, you can have a fantastic product, but if it doesn't function right for the people that are coming in your front door or not coming in your front door at home, in this case, it's it might as well be garbage because it's got to it's got to work the way they need it to work. And it's it's tough too because as an engineer and a designer, you're you know as a designer, you're trying to make it look beautiful and and be creative and uh, enticing. As an engineer, you're you're trying to make it stable, and so we fall into these kind of use patterns while we're testing and building that aren't what a user does. Uh, it's not how they'll interact with the app, uh, and so we, you know that's one of those things we always had to check ourselves. We had a, a brilliant uh, designer who had his uh, master's in machine human interface design, and uh, Mauricio Geraldo, who who just you know he did a really great job of just keeping it simple, uh, keeping it native. Um, and, you know, a lot of that went into our ability to be accessible. So not only to people with visual impairments, but people with low digital literacy. Um, you know, it's, if you talk to the frontline librarian, you know, there are certain groups that they always have to teach an app, even down to the point of here's how you turn it on. And so we wanted to make everything so simple. We, we even had to sometimes break some convention uh, like getting a, a book, we don't say borrow, we say get, because it was actually more uh, accessible as a, a, a language uh, to to different users uh, to reserve a book places versus placing it on hold. Because, you know, some people, when we ask them, what do you think a hold means? Like, oh, I think it's waiting for me at the library. Well, a new book right. isn't waiting for you. You're waiting on it. So it's a That's reservation. Right. So we, we, we took little details like that and tried to apply it and test them with users. Those little details add up to a mountain of experience for the for the user. You know, the user interface and the experience that they have using it. Those little tiny details. If there's ten of those, that's a make it or break it for somebody that could get frustrated in a couple of seconds and put it down, never to go back to it, or continue to use it because it makes them feel comfortable and they enjoy the experience. So kudos again to how you guys did that. We we had some goof ups too. <laughs> well, it wouldn't sure. be what it is without goof yeah. ups. Yeah. We we put a button one time for return that was right on the list, and it was the first thing your thumb would hit. And so as after a person borrowed it, it would. So we had to remove that button off the <laughs> list <view> and <laughs> kind of make it a little bit harder to go return. But it was that was one of those that really sticks in my mind. Librarians are really good, and this is where maybe you shouldn't listen to librarians so much. They're so good at the jargon of the profession. The circulation desk, placing a hold. Patrons don't understand that. And and I know here we've gotten in the habit of saying, oh, instead of saying, oh, you have to go to the circulation desk, go to the front desk, the first desk you see. When we're immersed in a profession, it sometimes it's really easy to forget you're speaking in a term of art that only other professionals in your profession are going to understand. So, you know, again, good job with, you know, you know, listening to the librarians and saying, well, we're not going to use this word. We're going to use this because this is a more common vernacular for a layperson just walking into the building. 
Chris, do you remember the? I mean, I can I, I revisit this daily because remember when uh, and we there are some libraries in Suffolk County where we live that still do this when they put OPAC terminals on their public catalogs. Yeah, and oh, the patrons walk the up to them. They have no. Just go to the OPAC and look up your book, and they look at you like like they should because they have no idea what you're talking about when you say OPAC. You might as well have said, you know, you know the that that Shatner's going to space. Um, Online public access catalog, right? So we call it OPAC, and people put OPAC all over the public library in big letters for people to look up uh, books on their catalog. And it's, it's so frustrating to have to explain to folks that um, the patrons don't see it that way. They don't speak your jargon, exactly like Chris said. They don't speak your language. So you de- need to develop it from the outside-in perspective. So We would think that the largest challenge would be making contacts with the various publishers aside from building the app. Because there's so many publishers out there and independent publishers, and they're all over the place. And then having to negotiate the digital rights management for all of those publishers and the respective materials, you can build a great software or a great app, which you guys have, but if you don't have the content, it's really just an academic process. So how did the organization approach that task of securing digital right management? And I think, Mika, this is your, this is in your wheelhouse, right? Yeah, so it's a good question, Chris. Thank you. I think um, you know, in some ways, the the DRM or the digital digital rights management can be a little bit of a red herring. You know, what I've found is that in all of our contracts with publishers, which is all of the big five, you know, hundreds of major publishers, we have over a thousand imprints available now in the Palace Marketplace. Uh, our contracts say, you know, any commercial DRM, and it lists a couple different options. And I've never had a publisher balk at that. I think 10 years ago, they were very concerned about people breaking DRM and pirating books. And I think that's really faded. I think as long as you have a you know viable DRM, they're okay with it. And so right now, we're moving fast towards the Redium LCP, which is an open source DRM that we're you know migrating to as quickly as we can, you know, built by the Redium Foundation that James mentioned. And that has been okay. I think the the aspect that has been a challenge and continues to be a challenge and we're working on pretty hard is negotiating the best possible licensing terms. And so there, you know, I've found that, uh, you know, the big five, we work with them. I, you know, I work with all of them. They're a lot more entrenched, I would say, in their models. They've been hesitant uh, to change them. And partly that's because some of them, like Penguin Random House, have gone through big public processes to come up with the model. And so, you know, change is slow. Once you move beyond the big five, uh, publishers are excited about libraries for the most part. You know, they recognize that as bookstores have largely gone out of business, not all of them, but there's a lot less, you know, bookstore shelf space in the country than there was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Libraries provide a really important venue for discovery for authors and titles. And so, you know, large and small publishers, I think, want to be in libraries and, and as soon as you get to kind of the medium and smaller publishers, you know, they're often pretty excited to find the win-wins. And we really believe that there's really not a conflict between publishers and libraries. We're, we're fundamentally on the same team, which is team reading, right? We want people reading a book on the subway or wherever instead of playing Candy Crush or whatever game they have. So, you know, with that in mind... Um, I would say we've had kind of three waves of success with publishers. You know, the first thing right out of the gate when we were still a very infant project, uh, we had some, you know, pretty good size, you know, medium-sized publishers 
that agreed to offer a variety of license models with us. So that includes publishers like Abrams uh, and Workman. So, you know, pretty big books like Diary of a Wimpy Kid that we could offer with three different licensing options. You know, we have the perpetual one at a time, which we were the first to offer. We have a model where libraries can buy a bundle of 40 lens. So 40 times they can have the book checked out and they can use up to 10 of those at the same time. Um, you know, more recently, we've started offering a bundle of five simultaneous uses, which is particularly good, I think, for smaller books because it's priced at like a quarter of the other price point. So it's cheap. You know, another example of a publisher that we had a big success with early and, and we've been able to bring in a lot of, I think, exciting titles is Independent Publishers Group, which is an aggregator of you know almost 100 small but high quality independent presses. So with that kind of middle tier publishers and not middle tier in terms of quality, but in terms of the size of their portfolio, you know, they're excited to find those win wins with libraries. And I think that we've had a lot of success there. Um, you know, there's another big success we had, which, you know, Michelle and I worked on a partnership with Bibliolabs, which is a you know, small library company that had worked out some really innovative deals with about 25 publishers where they could sell the publisher's entire catalog on a simultaneous multi-use basis. So the library pays based on the population they're serving, and then they can serve the titles to as many people as they want all at the same time perpetually. So initially we partnered with Bibliolabs and that's really been one of our most popular uh, types of content. We've had a lot of, that's been really resonant, especially state libraries have sourced a lot of that content. And now Lyricist has acquired Bibliolabs. So it's being run by a nonprofit and uh, you can acquire the Bibliolabs catalog either through DPLA uh, or the Palace Project. Um, and it really allows a library to promote a book without ever worrying about holds accumulating because they have an unlimited number of licenses on that, on that title. So that was sort of another uh, area where we were able to do something pretty different. I mean, in terms of the licensing models, you know, I think we were the first and maybe still the only distributor to offer, you know, two, three, four options on how a library could buy a book. And then being able to offer simultaneous multi-use was another breakthrough. And then I would say, I guess, kind of the third wave, you know, was Amazon. And, you know, Michelle got that conversation kicked off and we were able to bring them to the table uh, and convince them to offer their books through the Palace Marketplace. And Amazon was actually excited about testing multiple models. So they're going to have their, all their books are available in four different licensing models right now on the Palace platform. And that same model, you know, I think we're going to have some, well, I know we have some other, you know, major distributors that have not previously been available in libraries, you know, that'll be announced in the next month or so. So, you know, really we've been able to provide publishers and distributors with a sandbox where they can try out, library licenses on different models, uh, you know, with a library driven platform. And, you know, that's been able to, I think, really move the needle. I guess one last thing I would say on that is that, uh, you know, what we found is that a lot of the restrictions that libraries faced around how they use eBooks were really coming from distributors, you know, not from publishers. And an example of that is limitations on sharing. So, you know, 
what we found is that right now, no publisher in the country is really restricting how a library shares an ebook. And yet lots of libraries have been told, no, you're too big to be part of that consortia. You know, you have to buy books on your own or no, you can't share your public library consortia ebooks with academic libraries or with high school libraries. Uh, and so, you know, those were really coming from, you know, the commercial distributors and we just don't put those limitations on libraries. And so, you know, libraries working with us are able to share their books a lot more broadly. And that's just one of a number of examples of where, you know, the commercial distributors have not always been totally aligned with the interests of libraries. So, you know, we have a long ways to go with publishers. We have a long list of publishers we're chasing and, you know, it's really, really slow work, but we're getting there. And I think, uh, I think we can continue to have some success with bringing libraries more options. Yeah, no, it's tremendous. I know, I know James had to go. Um, I mean, thank you for, for that. But, but um, so I guess this was geared toward, toward James, but can one of you folks um, maybe pick up the answer for it? Um, now that you built digital infrastructure and you acquired digital rights management and you're seemingly ready to go, tell us about the process that got you there because we're very interested in how, how that was working with those, uh, you know, those publishers. I just, before we go there, I wanted, I, I really want to bring up this point because I think most people that get ebooks and audiobooks from libraries don't understand that when a library gets an ebook or audiobook, they are licensing it versus owning it. And this is a huge difference from physical books. So when Mike is talking about licensing models, which is another way to think of it as the lending model, it's because libraries can't actually buy electronic books or audiobooks. They're like, they're, so they don't actually own them. And that is a real tragedy in some ways in, in, in digital lending that we're dealing with. And patrons don't understand their tax dollars are being used not to buy these books, but actually to license them. And so when Michael was talking about lending models, I want to make sure patrons understand that's why he's talking about lending models. Right. It's the opposite of what patrons are used to uh, because they, they take out a book, they return a book, another patron takes out the book. Um, but the library owns the book. So the book's exactly. going to stay on the shelf or something like that. Um, you know, in some ways, this is very, very different. And patron, I'm sure patrons don't don't understand at all. This is a lending model, not an owning model. Right. And and so when a patron puts like 13 books on hold, the library's paid for all those books. So if the patron actually doesn't read it, it just costs the library the cost of that of that book to lend it out. But because it's a licensing model. And I think that there, there's a real awareness campaign there because it's it's your tax dollars. Right. And so really, uh, I think it's just an important point because what we're trying to do is change the lending model so more books are available for patrons at lower prices because there's more lending options um, that don't lock libraries into to one model. I know I we're a little off great. top. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to build on that and say, I think it's a great point. And, you know, we haven't talked about this much yet, but in addition to trying to give libraries more and better options for those licenses that they, that they purchased. Um, the platform itself has also, I think, really changed the way that libraries lend. And there's a few examples of that. So Michelle mentioned sort of the number of books a patron is allowed to put on hold, which is something you can have total control of through the palace platform. Another example that's, I think really important is 
how the books are presented to the patrons. So, you know, in most of the sort of commercial library distributors, when you log into your ebook borrowing app, the titles you see are the most popular titles, right? So, you know, we call those swim lanes, those sort of digital shelves, the rows of jacket covers. And if you think about someone perusing a library collection, you know, how many books are they really going to see? You know, maybe they scroll down 10 or 20 rows, right to left, they see maybe a couple hundred books, right? Uh, and we've done a lot of user analysis and, you know, fewer than one in three library patrons in ebook borrowing ever hit the search box. And I think it's worth letting that sink in a little bit. Like two out of three never search their entire session. They're just browsing. And so if you're just browsing and you see a couple hundred titles and those are the most popular titles, which are already checked out and have holds queues, then you come away with the impression that, well, everything good the library's got is already is already checked out. I'll just get in the holds queue. And then that drives up the holds queue on those most popular books libraries are forced to buy another copy. So this platform flips that model. And what we present at the top is available books. We, you only will browse to a book that you can get right now. And if you want a bestseller and you know that, then you're going to search the name of that bestseller or that author and you'll find it and you'll get in the holes queue. But most patrons don't. And so the patrons that are just kind of looking for something they want you know, to read right now are perfectly happy taking a book that came out a couple of years ago that is also a great book um, and borrowing it. And so what ends up happening as a result is that the library gets a lot more use and circulation out of their existing collections. You know, when we started doing this at New York Public Library, uh, the top 1% of the collection accounted for over half of the circulation, which is kind of mind boggling. You know, they had 100,000 books and the most popular thousand books was making up over half of the circulation. So the curve was just, you know, plummeted. And when we changed this to presenting available books, it really flattened out that curve. And within a few months, it was, you know, the top 10% of the collection. So we 10X the number of books that you had to look at in order to see the top half of circulation. So it really dramatically kind of spread the use across all of the excellent titles that were available instead of piling everyone into just the most popular. And I think that's just one example, uh, you know, building on what Michelle was saying of how, uh, you know, we can do a better service for patrons and for libraries if we start with those library values of discovering everything, not just pointing people to the most popular bestseller. How does the Palace Project work with Overdrive, Baker and Taylor, Biblioteca, or even, as you were saying before, Amazon, because I would imagine those are the biggest challenges. Yeah, so that is really the number one value proposition of the app itself, is that all of your content can be accessible in one place. And so in order to do that, we have to be, I'm going to say, content provider agnostic and you know, be able to serve every distributor's content through the app equally and fairly and make sure that, you know, DRM's in place for each of those providers separately because they all have their own kind of quirky DRM (laughs) wrapping. Um, And and that's what we do. I mean, that's because we want to make it simple for patrons to discover all their e-books and and we want libraries to be front and center in that experience. for all the ebooks that they've purchased from the different vendors, which gives them choice. I can imagine. So we have separate yeah. relationships with each of these providers. We have separate protocols we have to follow for each of these providers, but those content integrations are a big 
piece of the technical infrastructure uh, of the platform. And I would assume it makes your platform even more robust, as we were saying before, because you have you have almost free troubleshooting, right? <laughs> we have well, we have a lot of inputs, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from all of them, <laughs> in terms of uh, making it very robust. Heather, can you tell us about marketing the product uh, and the implementation of the product? I didn't want to skip over that because that seems important. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I found with my work at Khalifa and we're finding now is a lot of times um, the state libraries will kind of understand the project and get the project and maybe library directors will, but oftentimes um, frontline librarians are super busy um, dealing with patrons all the time and they hear about Palace and it's like, okay, well, that's one more thing to learn. Like, what's the point? So we've tried to put together a lot of resources um, to to help people understand and to really tell the story. But the main thing that we've built is um, an entire kind of social network, social hub that features a, a social component where when you join this, all of your librarians are actually joining this growing community of other Palace libraries, of colleagues who are implementing Palace around the country. And so we really get to kind of harness the experience of everybody and share best practices. And so we have, you know, this, this entire kind of social hub where people can ask questions, can, can use the experience of their colleagues and really draw on that. We also have things like open office hours and download happy hours and things like that, where we really want to train the the librarians and have them understand it so they can then tell their patrons because it sometimes is kind of tricky to wrap your head around like okay this is like this distributor but also has this and and there's a story behind it that we want to tell too like this, this is something that is important work that we're doing important for librarians to understand so um in that hub that everybody gets you know joins when they become palace libraries we also have a repository of training materials marketing materials all that kind of normal stuff but really we wanted to focus on this social component on this community aspect because it really is a a community effort to kind of make this work and and have people be able to share their experiences and and share um, how they're implementing palace their best practices and their struggles so that we can kind of work together to overcome that so there is obviously an implementation team and their implementation steps um, it's not too tricky um, it, and so we have a team that will reach out and will work to to get you set up in palace and work with you on testing and everything and then we also have access to this this social hub that you can join it's kind of like a facebook just for palace so that's the other part of it. I suppose doing it that way, marketing it like that and implementing it just like that gives you tremendous buy-in, which I, I swear most people don't get from their product because they don't bother to do um, all the work they've done on the front end. They they forget to do the work on the, not the back end, but the, the front end where the staff's going to see it and properly train them so you don't have somebody in a public service environment saying, Oh, we switched this new system, and uh, you know this and that. And I, I remember when we switched from Chris. You remember this when we switched from the uh, the Telnet terminal checking out books and at the circulation desk to Sierra or to some other automated system where you had to use a mouse. We had people retire over that because they were just a too afraid to learn it, or b um, they 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 weren't taught properly how to use it from text based it's so easy i can just hit this letter and that letter and the book's done now i have to click a mouse and do six extra steps but it just wasn't approached in the right manner so it sounds like you folks did it um just like you did for the public facing um part of this you did it for the staff facing part as well you stepped back 
you looked at how they were going to use it, um, their attitude, and the fact that you needed their buy-in to be successful, and you did it the right way. So it, it's very impressive. We also just, again, wanted to harness that experience that everybody has because there's a huge amount of knowledge, you know, in this library community, in library land. And often we're just kind of in our own little silos and our own little spaces working. And if we can have a place where people can come together to share that, I think it makes it all the more powerful. And I just want to emphasize on that, like this whole project is by and for libraries. You know, we, we, we support libraries. We are libraries. And so we need to have lots of pathways for people to work with us, to engage with us, to provide us feedback. So the, what I call like the palace Facebook network is one way to do it. We also are setting up um, advisory councils with libraries and user councils so that they can work with us directly to give feedback on the app and the platform and the publisher arrangements. We, you know, we are here to support them. Everything we do, we try to have transparency. The code is open source. You can go to GitHub. You could download the code and see it yourself. There's a wiki. There's a website. I mean, we have lots of different ways to engage with users and libraries and meet them where they are so that they can understand it. So we want to thank you for taking time out of your day to speak to us. This is a great project, and I think that everybody who listens to this podcast is going to benefit from from our talk. Do you have any plugs? Obviously, palaceproject.org. Yeah, palaceproject.org. I'd say, you know, the the Palace app is newly being added to the App Store. Um, so it's search the Palace Project uh, and you'll find the app. Um, it's going to be fully in production by November. Um, you know, one thing I'll plug is if your library isn't yet a member of the Palace Project, uh, you know, you should, you, or if you're a staff member or ask your library director to check it out, contact us. You know, it may not be right for you, but uh, we're always happy to give people a one-on-one, uh, you know, deep dive into the project and help you learn how your library might be able to improve its ebook service. One other plug is, you know, within um, the Palace app, there's, uh, Michelle mentioned this earlier, there's a huge collection of free books. So it's over 10,000 books now. Uh, and I lead the team that's going to be growing that to 25,000 books within the next year. Um, it's not just classics. I mean, there are some great classics. So I'll plug one in particular. If you've never read sort of a creative, a, a public domain classic, or you want to recommend to someone try out, try Sherlock Holmes, because every chapter is basically a short story. So for a plane or whatever, reading on your phone, it's a great way to try out a free book that's, you know, it's really, really a good book. <laughs> and it's not a lot of commitment. Um, and so, you know, in the palace app, even if your library is not participating, you can get, you know, tens of thousands of free books that are excellent. There's uh, a wide range of stuff there. Um, and I'd say, you know, just keep using your libraries and, uh, you know, another plug real quick is I would say, you know, some libraries are still using the simply e app, which is ultimately the same software. We're all really on the same team sharing the code. So New York public library, Brooklyn public library, and dozens of others, are using that library-driven app. Um, and we're all, uh, you know, working to put libraries back in control of their digital shelves. Very, very cool. So, again, Heather, Mika, James, and Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Thank you. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. 
Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Library Pros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.